Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Well, hello. I've been looking forward to this particular episode for a while. Um, I, I, first of all, I have to shout out Mike Pesca, a friend of the show, uh, for suggesting this idea after he had interviewed the same person. Uh, Curtis Sittenfeld's book, Rodham. Uh, well, one reason to do it here on a show in Connecticut is that a lot of Rodham, which is not an alternative history, but kind of an alternative biography, I think. Well, it's both, really. Uh, but it's the story of Hillary Rodham. If she did not, if she fell in love with but did not marry Bill Clinton. So a lot of it takes place during those early days in New Haven, at Yale Law School, uh, a lot of mise en scene that uh, some of you will enjoy and recognize. But there's so many other reasons to talk about this very fascinating book and to, fasc- to talk about it with the author. Curtis Sittenfeld is the author of a collection of short stories, You Think It, I'll Say It, as well as six novels, including Prep and Eligible. Uh, her nonfiction has appeared in the New York Times, uh, The Atlantic, uh, the, and NPR's This American Life, among other places. And this new novel is uh, Rodham. Curtis Sittenfeld, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. So um, let's just begin. I, like, I don't know how much summarizing of this novel you think can be done before we get into spoiler territory. So I'll let you make that call if you uh, wanted to explain to somebody, uh, you know, b- basically what's going on in the book. How far how far into that plot would you go? I know that's that's actually a very good question and I think I think it's okay to get a little spoilery but the the sort of non-spoiler version of things is um that in real life Bill Clinton proposed twice and Hillary said no and then he proposed a third time and she said yes and and my premise is what if she had said no a third time in, you know, she had followed him to Arkansas in 1975. And what if she had then gone her own way? Um, And so I sort of invent that life for her, which of course does have a lot of echoes with reality. Right. So, you know, there's been a lot said and written in recent years about the connection between reading fiction and empathy. And on that basis, I probably needed this book. I had kind of run out of patience with Hillary Rodham. Ha. <laughs> and and this, this book, no, in all seriousness, this book made me less pissed off at her. Uh, and and I, I guess I want to know, how about you? Were you uh, originally from the get-go uh, basically sympathetic to Hillary Rodham Clinton uh, when you started this project? Um, yeah, what, was, what was your state of mind about her before you started writing? So I was sympathetic and admiring of her prior to writing this book, but I would not say I was always super sympathetic and admiring. Um, I I kind of had like an admiration hiatus where um, Bill Clinton was elected when I was a senior in high school. And I really liked them both. And then during the years they lived in the White House, I would say I became somewhat disenchanted. And, um, you know, I'm sure that I wasn't old enough to vote in 92, but I'm sure I voted for him in 96. Um, But I did feel like all these sort of scandals um, 
kind of clouded my view of both of them. And then I wrote a book called American Wife mm-hmm. in 2008, which was a fictional retelling of the life of Laura Bush. And for research for that book, I read Hillary's then pretty recent um, autobiography, Living History, just because it was about, you know, about and by a recent first lady. And when I read that book, it did give me pause where, I mean, I hadn't been, I, again, I was just reading sort of (laughs) because I thought it might be useful, not because I actively wanted to revise my own opinion of Hillary, but I did start to think, you know, this idea I have of her, how much does it grow out of the choices she's made, the career she's had, the life she's led, and how much is it just sort of like, um, you know, influenced by this amorphous conversation that like the media has about her and these conversations about, you know, her hairdo or like maybe three random comments she's made over 20 years in the public eye. And I, I just, I think I started to step back and think like, I need to form my own opinion of her and not have a reflexive opinion that has actually been provided to me by others. Right. So the, um, you know, the Laura Bush case, the case of Laura Bush, she's enigmatic, I think, more because of her own reserve and mm-hmm. her tendency not to seek the spotlight. You know, Hillary Rodham Clinton, both of the Clintons are different. They are people who insist on telling us about themselves in the case of some of the books pretty pretty much at length <laughs> about themselves. And But I feel as though there's this sense that they are and maybe Hillary in particular, unknowable, you know, that, that there's this mask that never quite comes all the way off or this sense that people have that they they don't still have quite the right story, um, even though they've been told, you know, I mean, in multiple memoirs and things at this point. Was that part of the allure for you, this sense that after all this time, after three decades and quite a lot of interviews and books and stuff like that, people still aren't sure they know who this person is? I wouldn't say that was my primary goal because I I always like to sort of disclose I have never met either Clinton and and like I don't I don't think it's terribly likely that I will. Um, So it's not that I feel I can sort of let the American public know them in a way that they themselves can't. It's more that I, I actually think, you know, I think that writing this book gave me the opportunity to examine a lot of issues or themes that I find incredibly interesting and complicated. And in some ways, like one of those questions is like, what is it to know a person or like, how do we even, how do we define the word knowable? And, you know, like we do talk about how Hillary is sort of unknowable, but it's like, you know, is, is Mitt Romney knowable to us? Or, you know, is is like Chris Christie knowable? Or is it that we have a different expectation, like less expectation of peering into their soul than we do for a female politician? Yeah, I think it's somewhat that. Let, let me just say this and you can push back against it. Um, uh, or not. <laughs> I, I, the... Uh, the I see, I see one of the differences for uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, well, I mean, let, let's compare her to Amy Klobuchar. So Amy Klobuchar took some knocks in the most recent campaign that I thought were very gendered, sexist, about being a tough boss, a mean boss, tough to her employees, that this was really sort of looked, as, looked at as some kind of gigantic character flaw. I don't think there's any question that male politicians skate on the same charges. Um, 
what's fascinating to me about Hillary Clinton and that, that I, I, I can't think of another parallel in politics is every person you talk to who knows Hillary Clinton will tell you the same thing. I mean, it's so consistent. It's amazing, which is if she walked into the room right now and sat down and started talking to us, you would enjoy her so much. She's warm. She's funny. She's genuine. She's relaxed. She's, you know, a, a, just a really notably nice, engaging, warm, real person. Uh, you know, usually politicians try to convince you that they are better people than they really are. <laughs> you yeah. know, they are usually trying to cover up the fact that, you know, that they are mean to their employees or that they're sleeping around or that something. They took some money they're not supposed to take. Whereas Hillary Clinton has struggled to convince people that she is as nice as she is. Um, you know, she has struggled to get the American public to believe something, which I think by all accounts is true about her, which is she's a pretty enjoyable person. And 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 I don't even I can't even think of any other female politicians who have that problem. Well, you know, it's interesting because I you'll get no pushback from me. Like, I agree 100 percent. It's that's very consistent with everything that I've heard. And people will say, you know, she can charm you one on one or in a small group like she's very prepared. She's excellent, excellent at listening. She's warm, which even as I hear myself say these things, these are very like gendered ways to describe a person. But um, but there's something that I think about, and she talks about this a little bit in What Happened, her book, um, mm. which I think came out in 2017, where it's, it's sort of like people would say, you know, this should humanize her or like this doesn't humanize her. And she talks about it. it's hard to prove that you are something you are and so it's sort of hard for her to prove like once once she's always introduced by you know in articles or you know in television analysis of her campaign or her personality she's always introduced as like polarizing or divisive and so so the audience has been told that outright and it's like you know is that even true do we only think that because we're told that over and over for like 30 years um because i don't I mean, I, I sometimes think like the, the comparison I sometimes make is like if someone said to me, Curtis, you are a plagiarizer. And I would think like, no, I'm, I'm not. But like, how do I go through my days proving I'm not? I mean, I can like write more books, but like it's just very weird that there's this. And, and again, because it's this very nebulous label that's given to her that like we're told she's unlikable and just sort of apropos of your um like earlier comments, I almost feel like she herself um, is like an optical illusion where people see her one way or the other because she does have a ton of admirers. Mm -hmm. But but it's almost like people people feel like sometimes some people will either think like I hate her and I hate her or like I grudgingly respect her, but I don't find her at all appealing or endearing or whatever. Or people will think like. She's awesome. I mean, she's he's like a feminist hero and and she would have been like a magnificent president. And there's a lot of people who think that, although it, it does. It's almost as if the public discourse only talks about the first two groups, like either people purely hate her or they like respect her, but don't like her. Right. So, I mean, this, you know, has been fodder for all kinds of things, including this very interesting novel. But uh, the world of comedy has had some uh, fun with this idea, too. Here's uh, Kate McKinnon as Hillary Clinton, I think, prior to the 2016 election. 
Donald Trump has terrible judgment. He makes bad decisions. He's spent his life cheating middle-class laborers. Laborers like my own human father who made, uh, I, I guess, drapes or uh, printed drapes or sold drapes or uh, some with drapes and he was relatable and I am also relatable. So I, I, I want to talk very specifically about one thing that I think you do just a marvelous job with, and it is so there are one of the persistent mysteries, uh, and it's a mystery that tracks back at least to 1992, if not earlier, uh, is how does this marriage work? How does this relationship work? I mean, back in 1992, as is well documented in your book, you know, we already had sort of Trooper Gate and we had Jennifer Flowers. We had the 60 Minutes uh, interview. So this has been going on for a long time. And I think some people think, well, it's got to be some kind of weird devil's bargain. And then other people, I think, more correctly say, everybody's marriage is weird. Everybody's relationship is weird. We just don't know as much about most people's relationships and, and marriages. But even though you don't have them get married, the time that we spend with Bill and Hillary as a couple and as a very, very serious you know, bonded couple, I think, I think you make a very, very persuasive case about how this could work, why these two people would stay in a relationship for a long time, even after she has direct her own eyeball evidence of his infidelity, like what else there is to this relationship. But maybe you can just talk about what that's like as a fiction writer to create a love that you know has existed. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I I do subscribe to the the sort of theory that you offer that like every marriage is a weird devil's bargain and, and like I think I think it is so strange um like in the famous January 19 I guess it was, was it, yeah it was January 1992 interview on 60 minutes um that the interviewer says something like you know is this some sort of arrangement as if every marriage is not some sort of arrangement, right? Um, like, like, it's like, oh, you know, every other marriage is like a passionate fairy tale love affair, except for the Clintons. And then and there's something weird about them. Um, but I mean, I do think that they genuinely love and respect each other and find each other really interesting and intellectually stimulating. And it, it is sort of, notable or striking that you know at this point the gores are no longer married mm -hmm. sarah palin and her husband are no longer. which again i'm not i'm not a person who's like who thinks like divorce is a catastrophe and a failure you know like i think different people's lives play out differently but i don't i don't think the clintons would have remained together if they didn't want to be and there's there's actually a part in the hulu documentary about hillary um, that came out recently where a, a Yale law school classmate of both of theirs says something like, these are two people who genuinely love each other. And it would have been so much easier if they didn't. Right. I, I, I will say that this has been backed up by, I think I'm allowed to tell this as long as I don't tell you how I know this, <laughs> uh, that, that when people would ask Dick Morris, who knew Hillary really well working with her closely in the White House, what the hell is the deal here? He would say, it's really simple. She is madly in love with him. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I think for the first half of your book, she is exactly that. She is madly uh, in love with this guy. And the other thing that you introduce, and we might as well get this out of the way, uh, is that they have a pretty terrific sexual chemistry, which you're not afraid to go into detail about. 
<laughs> so and and so that's a decision, right? I mean, I think it's a decision that you had to make, and and you had to make it the way that you made it, uh, and it really adds quite a bit uh, to the kind of almost argument for the relationship. But it must feel a little odd describing, you know, in some detail at, at times what is taking place sexually between two real life people. So it's funny because, you know, like listening to that Kate McKinnon clip, which I, I love Kate McKinnon and think she's, you know, super talented. Um, I think that in some ways when I'm writing scenes, I feel what I maybe imagine Kate McKinnon might feel where it's like, this is clearly fiction. Like this is clearly a novel. And so I don't think, like, I, I mean, just this maybe a little graphic for public radio but i don't feel like i'm standing in a room like observing bill and hillary having sex like i i feel like there's this sort of parallel universe and you know there's this young couple in their early to mid 20s in in the early 1970s and they're so excited about each other and they can't believe they've met this other person who feels like their soulmate sort of intellectually physically emotionally and it seems really organic and appropriate to me to depict that physical chemistry and that, that there would be something missing if it if it wasn't there yeah no and i think it is dealt with very well but i i also sense there are people well let's go at it this way okay so um uh, on the quote page of your book uh you quote from uh, a song uh, in hamilton uh, which i think is is very apropos here uh, you just quote one line but we'll play just a, a little bit of it right here cat uh, i'm erasing myself from the narrative let future historians wonder how eliza reacted when you broke her So, uh, Curtis Sittenfeld, uh, so the line we should say that, that you have on your quote page is the one about uh, the world has no right to my heart. But, you know, you and Lin-Manuel Miranda are struggling with the same thing. In, in a sense, you're there, right? You, you are uh, introducing us to at least to your fictive version uh, of what goes on in hearts and beds and things like that. And there must be some people, I, I'm not one of them, Although there may be a person like that living in this house with me right now, ha! who's who see that as too invasive, you know that that it's exactly the problem that that Philippa Sue is singing about in that song. So react to that. Um, well, by the way, it's so funny. I feel like I feel like I have to compliment you on the high quality of your like audio clip selection. Like it's like it's like so fun to hear Kate McKinnon's voice, Philippa Sue's voice. Like I um, it, I feel like it's like bringing my own novel to life to me. Um, but it's funny. I think that in that so on the sort of um epigraph page for Rodham, there's a quote from. Hillary's, you know, memoir, what happened, where she says marrying Bill Clinton was like the biggest decision of her life and she would do it again. And then there's the the world has no right to my heart. And and I feel like that's my 
very deliberate choice to present a kind of counter argument to my own book and to say, okay, here's 400 pages that very intimately imagines this living person's life and, you know, a sort of an alternate version, but also some, some real aspects of it. And, you know, like she stands by, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to convince you that she wishes the real Hillary wishes she had not married real Bill Clinton. And I'm not even really trying to convince you that that it's the right choice to write this kind of novel. I mean, I did, but like I'm saying, I acknowledge that there's a counter argument. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, that, that, that makes total sense. Um, so I, I, I was going to ask this later, but I'll ask it now. Is there any, do you have any reason to suppose either that Hillary Clinton has read this book or that she will never, ever read this book? I mean, anything coming back uh, through back channels to you about that? I think I have reason to suppose she will never, ever read, read this book. So, um, I mean, I do know that some people who have worked with her have read it. Um, and I think, I think some have liked it. Some have maybe been a little weirded out by it. My hunch is that, you know, she's so scrutinized and such a public figure and has been for so long that I think she probably is accustomed to tuning out certain conversations or certain kinds of attention that just feel irrelevant. And, and you know, as much as I wanna feel like novels are at the, the center of our culture, I think that she could, she could, you know, think to herself, okay, there's a novel that that is about me, but like, what bearing does that have on sort of how I spend my days? And obviously, I mean, she's, I think, working behind the scenes and, at the forefront of, um, you know, trying to ensure that there's like a safe, legal presidential election in November. Um, so I just think that it probably, like, I, I, I think she she does read fiction sometimes and she certainly follows the news. So I'm sure that she knows that the book exists, but like, I just don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that she has read it or will read it. All right, so let's play uh, a, a different alternative uh, universe game. Uh, I've got a switch here. I can push it one way and she'll read it. I can push it the other way and she'll never read it. So tell me which way to push that switch. <laughs> well, okay, so I I feel um, very conscious of the fact that I could have written a book where perhaps I would get a, a gracious letter from her. Or perhaps I'd even meet her, you know, like it could be a very, um, this is actually, a, I think an admiring book or like mm -hmm. someone, someone could read it. And, <laughs> and I think very strongly suspect that like I had voted for Hillary and I'm a Democrat, which I, I did. And I am. But I think that the reader has to know or sense that my loyalty lies with the novel and not with Hillary. And that I'm not writing something like I'm right. I'm trying to tell a story. I'm trying to examine the complexities of human nature and the human experience. And I'm not, I'm not trying to become Hillary Clinton's new best friend. And so, so the way this might be a cop out, but the way I would answer your specific question is, if she wants to read it, I would, I would love to have her read it. I would welcome her feedback, but I don't, I don't think that I get everything and I don't get to write exactly the book that I want to write and then declare that like, it's somehow her obligation to read it. 
Oh, no, of course not. Uh, although I, I will say this just from having lived a, a long life now, I, I know of so many instances. I'll tell you two of them really fast. So back in the early days of Doonesbury, uh, the comic strip was being written and published. Uh, it might have still been called Bull's Ta- Bull Tales or something at that point, but it was published in the Yale Daily News. And one of the uh, characters was based, uh, one of the long-running characters, BD, is based on uh, Brian Dowling, who was this storied Yale quarterback at the same time Gary Trudeau was there. And there was a sense that they didn't like each other and that they were unhappy with each other. And Dowling in particular was unhappy with Trudeau. And a guy I know brokered a lunch between the two of them. He said, you guys just have to come out to lunch and just talk this through. And they, they go out to lunch and they're sitting there and they're just they're not looking at each other and they're only talking to their host. <laughs> they're not talking to each other at all. And finally, Brian Dowling looks up at Gary Trudeau and says, how did you know about the thing, whatever it was? It was a thing that <laughs> Trudeau had completely imagined, but it had happened and it had happened between Dowling and his girlfriend. And he just felt as though Trudeau was spying on him somehow, that he'd found out things like that. Uh, you know, and similarly, Frank Rich told me that between th- that whenever they th- would take the cast of Veep to shoot in Washington, people would come up and say, how did you know that thing? How did you find out about that? About some really horrible, depraved thing that one right, of the characters right, had done. Right. And, and, and they would say, we didn't know anything. We just imagined it. So I'm assuming that Hillary, Hillary Clinton reads the book and comes up to you. She's going to say, how did you know about the thing in the car in Arkansas? I never told anybody that story. <laughs> Uh, well, so so when you arrange a lunch with yeah. me, you, and Hillary Clinton, I, I will definitely show up. I'm nowhere near important enough to do that, but, <laughs> but somebody is, so maybe it'll happen. Uh, all right, so we're going to take a break now. We're talking to Kurt, Curtis Sittenfeld. Her book, uh, which uh, I had a lot of fun reading and I'm having fun talking about, is Rodham, a different, uh, an imagined different personal history for Hillary Rodham. We'll be back after this. Something has changed within me Something is not the same I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game Too late for second So we're back. We're talking to the novelist and short story writer Curtis Sittenfeld. We're talking about the book Rodham, which I enjoyed enough so that I'm uh, probably going to read American Wife next, which is the Laura Bush book. And then I'll, I'll wait for the Michelle Obama book or whatever comes after that. Uh, but uh, the novel is really, really terrific. Very, very interesting. And so Curtis Sittenfeld, a couple of quick questions about research. Um, one of them is, did you talk to anybody who's not mentioned in the acknowledgments, by which I mean, were there people who were willing to talk to you to tell you things that most people don't know about Hillary Rodham or about the Rodham-Clinton relationship? Or did you want not even want to know that kind of thing? So the short answer is no. I did not talk to anyone. <laughs> the funny thing about being a novelist is you can do a lot of research. And then if you either, you know, can't find something or it doesn't exist. You just make it up. Like it's, it's not like you have to find that that like super juicy tidbit or super secret thing or something. Um, so you know, there's there's that. But something that was actually really touching to me is that I would say I think maybe three different Wellesley graduates of very different ages reached out and basically 
sort of asked me if I if I needed any information about Wellesley. And they <laughs> clearly wanted to make sure that I was like doing justice to, I mean, to Wellesley and to Hillary. Like they were clearly saying it from a place of admiration and kind of protectiveness of her. But but I don't, and in the end, I, <laughs> I actually did try to figure out like, you know, what's the exact green or, or quad or whatever, where, where the graduation took place in 1969. But, but there's nothing like, oh, this scandal that, that someone told me off the record. There's nothing like that. All right. By the way, I should say that um, now that I am finished reading this book, I'm going to hand my copy of it very soon, maybe in the next 24 hours, to my former wife, who is a Wellesley graduate and graduated not too long after um, Hillary Rodham. So that will be interesting. Uh, by, and, by the way, my my I have an aunt who was a freshman at Wellesley when Hillary was a senior. Mm -hmm. And so very consistently during the years that I was writing this, which it took me about two and a half years, um, I would text my aunt and I would say things like, OK, you know, if the phone rang in your dorm, like where was the phone and how did the message get delivered to you? Or like, could you wear pants to classes? Or so, so I hope that the Wellesley details are very authentic. So the other thing that feels authentic to me, and I've uh, I've never been a, well, that's not true. I've mostly not been a full-time political reporter or commentator, but I've covered a lot of campaigns. And, and I think they're an easy thing to get wrong, you know, um, and even if, even if you're observing them as a journalist, it's kind of hard to know what's going on inside unless you have ways of kind of sticking your nose in there. Um, based on what I know about campaigns, I think you, you really get a lot of this right. And, and some of it, I mean, obviously, you say you read some of these memoirs and stuff like that. But I, there's I don't know. Did you talk to people who had kind of on the ground campaign experience that, ha that has a little of the feel of that during during Hillary Rodham's subsequent political campaigns? Well, so and this is this is where it's like a tad spoiler spoilerish in a way I'm, yeah. I'm fine with that my fictional Hillary also like real Hillary does go into politics. And and also I'm I'm delighted that the details rang true. I mean, I really it really is my goal as a fiction writer that if someone has expertise in anything that I'm writing about, I do want them to think like, how did Curtis know? So it's like if they know how a campaign works if they know what Arkansas was like in the 1970s, if they know what it's like to be a law professor, like I want them to think like, this is so convincing instead of like, oh, you know, she's, she's just a novelist who lives in Minnesota and sits in a room by herself typing. Um, but in terms of actual research for the campaign, there are a couple things. I mean, one, I, I read the memoirs of all the female senators who ran for president in this election cycle, mm -hmm. like, you know, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. I read, there's a um, fascinating, very juicy book by a New York Times journalist, Amy Chozik, called yeah. Chasing Hillary about, you know, the, the 2016 campaign, being a reporter on the 2016 campaign. And then also this, it'll make me seem like my, my primary... Um, form of research is like reaching out to family members, which might mm -hmm. be true. But I have a brother who is currently in his um, third term as a, a member of the Cincinnati City Council and in fact is actually running for mayor of Cincinnati. And I would often text him and it's it's those nitty gritty questions where it would be like, like I would say things like, okay, what does, how does a senator's 
staff members address the senator? Do they, you know, do some people call him or her by first name? Do people say ma'am or sir? Do, do they say senator, you know, or, or like if a, somebody is going to announce that they're running for, for public office, who are the staff members that they've already hired before they even publicly announce? And so it's that really nitty gritty stuff. And sometimes my brother couldn't tell me, but he would say like, this is, this is how you can find out or, um, but you know, there is, there's the, the internet is a vast place and there is a lot of publicly available information. I, I think one of the things you get right, and this is just my opinion, which may not be worth all that much, but um, so I have what I call the R2-D2 theory of campaigns. And, and by that, I mean, in the first ever Star Wars movie, there's a scene near the end where Luke is flying his starfighter into the Death Star and he has his little robot, his droid R2-D2 on the back of his plane. And at one point he says, uh, R2-D2, that, that fuel line just broke or something. Stabilize it right now. And he beeps and does some things. And see, campaigns are a lot like that. Things keep going wrong in campaigns, you know, things that mistakes that you make in the campaign happen and then just stuff happens to you that is not of your own creation. And either you're R2-D2 and you can lock down that thing that's flopping around back there and get back on your flight path or you're going to lose. And, and I, I thought you captured that really well. That's just kind of sense that one of the qualities of a successful campaign is its ability to react to things that go wrong, which happens all the time and people who lose elections often go well this happened and that happened and that you know i this thing happened that wasn't my fault and i always think yeah but it was your problem you had to fix it so i just wanted to compliment you on that i thought you really got that that's really interesting i mean and again there was <laughs> there was the actual 2016 campaign and other campaigns. I should mention another book that I that I sort of used for research and found super interesting is um, Jennifer Palmieri, who was the director of communications for Hillary's campaign, wrote this very interesting book that's sort of like part advice, part memoir. That's called Dear Madam President, sort of addressed to the the first woman who will be president. Um, and you know, so, and so obviously she was you know had a lot of like putting out fires in the course of her her normal job. But but there's, I don't know, it is, it's, I, I think as a writer, of course, I think in terms of like structure and scenes and, and like, what's a plot that like goes across this, you know, 70 page chapter or something. So I don't, it's not in a weird way. It's not a campaign to me, even though it has, it's, it's like depicting a campaign, but it's interesting to hear you say that. The uh, you probably saw in Vox at one point they uh, got together a whole bunch of Matthew Iglesias type political pundits and tried to apply political theory to everything that you wrote and also figure out what the composition of the Supreme Court would be if we had the different series of presidents that you posit in the book as opposed <laughs> to the ones that we did and does Sittenfeld uh, is she too optimistic about insurgencies like Jerry Brown and John McCain and I don't know if you saw this article I, I, I did I did yeah. see it. I did. Well, I, I thought mean, it was did... very fun. I mean, it was, yeah. it was simultaneously, like in a way I was like flattered that they would sort of apply that level of analysis to a novel. Um, but yeah, what, what were you going to say? Well, I was, was just like, wondering, I mean, I, another possible reaction would be, I'm a novelist. <laughs> no, I, I, like I can't be held responsible for all the stuff that you're talking about. Although I, I, if I were you, I would interpret it as a compliment because it's it's like they're saying this is really worth thinking through alongside Sittenfeld. Let's go through this and and see what happens. Yeah, well, it's funny because so 
you know, because I, I, and again, this is teeny, teeny spoiler, like (laughs) cover your ears for for 10 seconds. But, you know, the, the 1992 presidential election plays out differently in the novel than in real life, which then, as you're alluding to, sort of changes the series of presidents from then on. And I did think to myself, okay, then obviously that probably also changes the the makeup of the Supreme Court. And then I thought to myself, okay, this novel is already 400 pages. Like there's (laughs) only so so far I can go. Or like sometimes readers think they want something and, and I need to recognize like, no, you don't want that. Like, so like one, there was one review that sort of went into detail about how they didn't feel like essentially like her, you know, platform as a politician or like her policies were, clearly enough articulated and i just thought i do not think i mean maybe you as an individual reader and nobody else goes to a novel for that um so so i'm i'm like at peace with you know not having included that but it's it's funny because in some ways i do enough research and take enough pride in my research that i thought my dream come true would be for like a political reporter to to kind of break it down and and analyze it but my experience of reading that article was (laughs) i am not the intended audience like this is interesting and wonky and and kind of like you know, it's, it's like people having a conversation about you when you're not in the room, like you're really not meant to hear it. I mean, it's not, it's not that it's insulting, but it's just, it's like, it's so much like, you know, or it's almost, it's almost like someone, like two people having a conversation about like my baby when I'm, when I'm not in the room, like saying like, oh, you know, like his, his nose is kind of big or something. And I just think like, what, what are you talking about? Well, also, it also had a little bit of the quality of, you know, fans of Star Trek asking William Shatner some incredibly complicated question about some aspect that they've thought through way harder than he has and, and him finally yeah. having to say, yeah. this is actually fiction. You get that, right? I mean, this is, there, there is no Starship <laughs> Enterprise. So um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit, too, about it. It seems to me that one of the things that this book does, and I have to make sure I do. Well, no, actually, Betsy Kaplan is telling me we should take a break. So why don't we do that? I usually do what Betsy Kaplan tells me to do. So we'll take a break. We have one more segment coming up with Curtis Sittenfeld. Her novel is Rodham. We'll tell you more after this. All right. Uh, I have to say some thank yous, especially to Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio. It makes it possible. Not that I would be any use in the studio, but because she's there, I can work remotely. She's the person uh, making this whole show happen the way that it needs to happen. And so thanks to Kat Pastor. And then special thanks also to senior producer of the Colin McEnroe show, the recently mentioned Betsy Kaplan. She's the producer of this episode. Uh, tomorrow is The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. We have, there isn't a, a grown up if that's the right word, version of the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure movies uh, with the same two actors. We're going to talk about that as well as other things, including I feel like we have to talk about the woman from the Tiger King who's going to be on Dancing with the Stars. There's just clearly I want to know who can't be on Dancing with the Stars, like like how bad your life has to be (laughs) before they go. Well, we really can't have you on Dancing 
<laughs> with the stars. Um, so anyway, Carol Baskin, that's her name. So um, we're talking right now to Curtis Sittenfeld. Uh, Hershey is the author of, the, of many novels, including the recent novel Rodham, A Differently Imagined Life for Hillary Rodham. So um, first of all, I want to say that a couple of times you really made me laugh because the characters, particularly in one long conversation, toward the end between... Hillary and let's call him a suitor, they suddenly start having a conversation about alternative universes, about alternative realities. Is there such a thing as fate? Or, you know, what if some one little detail of my life was different? And so it's kind of like watching Bugs Bunny uh, and Daffy Duck have a conversation like, what if this was just an, an animated cartoon we're in? Uh, <laughs> and it really made me laugh. But I mean, it also made me wonder, is this, first of all, is this something you think about a lot? I mean, is this is not maybe just a one-off, right? Do you spend a lot of time thinking about that kind of butterfly effect? What if you change one thing for, for people? Yes. Don't you spend a lot yes. of time thinking yes. about that? Doesn't everyone? Yes. Um, yes. No, I spend a lot of time thinking about my life when I actually become a virologist or epidemiologist and then i'm working for the white house when the <laughs> pandemic breaks out and i save everybody uh, and, and so. i'm president now i, I mean it's right. I, I think that um you know i was so in in 2018 my family moved from st louis missouri where we had lived for 11 years to minneapolis and um it, it's something that's interesting to me is you know my life is like pretty similar overall in those two places mm -hmm. and it and i had, was already working on the book by by the time we moved here but it does you know like i do think okay so if i had gone to a different college would i have you know would my life be 85 percent the same would it be 15 percent this you know like or if if there's you know there's the sort of sliding doors question like if yes. i had gotten on some you know some subway or if i had you know like turned left instead of right like i i, I almost don't think I, I don't understand how a person could ever not think that true true i mean no i would agree so let me in the, there's our time is limited and i, I want to kind of open up a pandora's box or a can of worms or something like that and so there's <laughs> there's a moment i will try to take it as far out of context as possible but there's a moment where um, Hillary Rodham is saying to her aides uh, about Bill Clinton, he doesn't deserve to be president, not because he's a vegan, but because he's, sex he's a sexual predator. And and this is also based on something that's happened and that she's aware of that's happened in the first uh, half of, of the book that's maybe not that dissimilar to uh, the Juanita Broddick story. Um, and, I, and that brought me up short because, you know, one of the problems that I had in 2016 is that, you know, I don't know whether Juanita Broddick is telling the truth. Uh, I'm kind of assuming that Car Paula Corbin Jones is mostly telling the truth. It seems pretty clear that Monica Lewinsky, you know, was in the position that she described being in. And I was very, you know, we're going to have a woman president someday. I want to have a woman president very soon. But and there will probably not necessarily, but probably therefore be a first husband. I really didn't want the first first husband to be this guy for that exact reason. You know, he's just done too many things to women uh, to be a guy that I want back in the White House. Um, and, and she says it <laughs> right there on the page. I, what was I don't know. What, what's your thinking about all that? Well, I mean, there's. <laughs> I had a lot of thinking like that's why that's why I had to write a novel about yeah. it to, to, to encapsulate all of my thinking. I mean, 
it's interesting. I personally, I would have taken that trade off. Like I would have been okay with Bill Clinton being the first first man if it meant that Hillary was the first female president. Gotcha. Um, but I do think that you know, there are contradictions in all of our lives. And I do, as I said before, like, I think that Hillary is a feminist hero. And I also think she's married to someone who, I mean, the best thing you could possibly say is that his choices are questionable, or like some of his behavior has been questionable. And you can say much worse things than that. Mm. Um, And but that's like, you know, I, I think that that's what a novel is for, is like some some impossible choice or some impossible contradiction is is bad in life and good in fiction, where, where it just feels like, um, I mean, it, it is this this weird thing or this asterisk next to her name or something that that you think like, how did she make this choice? And and I think that's what I'm exploring over 400 pages. Yes, very good answer. Um, okay, so um, let's go to the world of show business. This is probably something that you, you, you can't say much about, but we're reading reports, speaking of Hulu, which you mentioned before, that Hulu is going to adapt uh, this work. Um, I don't know if there's anything you can say about it. And usually as a novelist, you don't have that much that you even get to say about it to Hulu. But is there anything you'd like to say about it? Um, I mean, I, th- I think the main thing I would say is I, I hope it happens. You know, my first yes. novel came out 15 years ago. And since then, a lot of my books have been optioned, including more than once. And as you may or may not have noticed, you have not seen any adaptations right. on screen. So so it doesn't, I mean, I, I'm optimistic. The woman who is behind it is Sarah Treem, who is the showrunner for, for the, the show The Affair. I think she's really talented. I've had back and forth with her about the book. Um, so, you know, I, I think it seems like it's such a crazy moment, obviously, pandemic wise and TV production wise, and that who, who knows? And you're, it's true that it's, I would say, out of my control, but fingers crossed. Yeah, um, I'll just say one name: Brie Larson. Uh, I could just sort of see Brie Larson. I, I, they may have to get, they may have to do it like The Crown and have different people, different actors play different stages. But I'm, I'm fully on board with. I think Brie Larson is very talented, and <laughs> from your mouth to God's ears. Right. Well, I mean, I have a lot to do, Curtis. First of all, I have to set up this lunch between you and Hillary. <laughs> Um, and then I've got to get Brie Larson on board with this project. You know, I have my own life, Curtis. I can't just. <laughs> I'll, I'll setting... check back in a week or two and see <laughs> oh, see if you finished your all your tasks. Right, I, I can't just be setting up stuff for you. So, um, you know, this is a question that I typically don't ask novelists, but I think it's a reasonable one here. I mean, do you have some when somebody finishes the novel, closes the cover, puts it down? Do you have a particular way you want them to feel or think or uh, I don't know? I'm already getting something like a message from some guy saying, wow, this is really helping rewire my male centered brain. This is terrific. I'm loving this conversation. <laughs> so well, I did. I did write five other novels and that could also help rewire your male centered brain. <laughs> There's more where that came from. Um, but yes, as you were saying. But it's it's usually a bad question to ask a novelist. Novelists write novels because they they need to write the novel, uh, not because they want the person to put the book down and go. Well, now I think this. But I don't know. Do, did you have any hopes uh, about what kind of effect this book would have on some readers? Yes, I mean I think there's two things. One, I do think public figures 
including high profile women, are as complex and interesting and and potentially as um, you know sort of like vulnerable and deserving of sympathy as we ourselves are. Like like let other people be complicated in the way that you know you yourself are complicated. So that's one thing. And then I also think I think that the sexism around when women run for office is so over the top that in some ways we're blind to it. Like it's just, it's so in the air and the things that it's appropriate to say about, you know, a woman's appearance or her clothes or her marriage or her voice. It's like, I I think it's like maybe wanting to kind of step back and say, we're used to this, but it's like really crazy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's good that's good that would that would make a lot of sense yeah i mean i do think that we've just you know we're we're you know we sometimes talk about this pandemic as a bridge we're building while we're trying to walk over the bridge and i, I think that happens in politics too and in public life you know we're trying to figure a thing out and its principles while we're living it we're trying to figure out you know uh, how to react how to cover how to deal with a, a female candidacy a woman's candidacy while it's happening and i think fiction is a great place to go and kind of you know think about it a little bit separately have a little moment where you can sit with some of these ideas and i think you've done a marvelous job with this so uh, the book is Rodham. Uh, the author is Curtis Sittenfeld. We have been very lucky to spend a whole show with you. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. This was so fun. I, I'm the lucky one. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe we both are. Uh, we'll uh, be back tomorrow with The Nose, our cultural roundtable. And so thanks for being with us today. I hope that you 